0: Welcome to the Answering Religious Error Show. My name is Brian Garlock. So glad you could tune in today. This is our live Bible Q and A. It is Wednesday, 12 p.m. Eastern Time. We go live every Wednesday at that time. And so, if you have a Bible question, now is the time to ask your questions. You can email us questions at answeringreligiouserror.com. Again, that's questions at error.com or private message us. Go to facebookcom error. Those are the two best ways to get a hold of us. Uh, These videos do have a lot of shares, so if we don't get to your question, it's not that we're trying to avoid you, it's just that we have not seen it. And so if you want to guarantee that we see your question, email us or private message us on Facebook. You can also head over to YouTube and Twitter, and we are live there. And then after the show airs live, it is audio only on all major podcast platforms if you're not able to watch us live or on video. So we encourage you to subscribe to us on podcast. Let's not forget about the Daily Answer with Mark Dunnigan. That's every Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. Eastern Time. And so if you want some daily insight uh, to Mark's life and then how he applies that to uh, different spiritual, it uh, makes different spiritual applications, things that will ultimately apply to you and, and your improvement as a Christian, then we encourage you to subscribe to the Daily Answer on all major podcast platforms, and you can check that out again every Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. Eastern Time. All right, gentlemen, it's good to see each and every one of you. Looking forward to our show today. And, uh, And we've got a lot of questions lined up, already getting some questions in today live as well. Mark Dunnigan is sitting in Chris Kramer. If you are a viewer of the anti Religious Era Tuesday show, Chris, Chris does the hosting over there. So Mark's at Chris's house, and you have Nick, Brian, and, and Terry. We've got a couple out today. But guys, good to see each and every one of you. Uh, any comments before we get started on our show? Brian, great to, be here.
1: great to be on the show, and you're looking good. You're looking good.
0: I'm trying. It's a it's a daily struggle. <laughs> anyway, let's open with the word of prayer. And uh, if you'll bow with me, we'll we'll get started on that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much uh, for this opportunity to be able to answer these questions uh, that we have received. We pray, Father, that the things that we discuss today will be in line with Scripture, uh, your inspired word that you have revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that we will stick with your mind on these matters and not Uh, create things in our mind, the mind of men. Uh, Please be with each of the panelists as they answer these things and with the audience members as uh, they send their questions in and we can all strive to come to the knowledge of truth and be found righteous in Christ. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, live Bible Q&A. If you have a Bible question, email us, questions at answeringreligiousair. Dot com or private message us on our Facebook page. Also, if you'd like to come on the show, you can do so. Follow the instructions on Facebook and YouTube descriptions. Uh, click on that link. Come on the show. Ask a question. We'll be nice to you. Don't worry. And until then, it is meme time. All right. Today's meme I think goes really well with yesterday's ARE show uh, on why I believe in God. Uh, This meme that's going around, this was uh, actually an atheist who posted this, uh, death does make you closer to God. And it's got a picture of a a cemetery. It says death does make you closer to God because now you don't exist either. And so we want to answer this meme that's been floating around on social media. And we will start with uh, Nick. I'm going to put you on the spot, man. Let's see what you got to say.
2: It says Death does not make you closer to God Because now you don't exist either It just shows the emptiness of atheism And no belief in God You see here that uh, They understand that once they die That their life is over There's nothing else And that's very empty Because we have a lot of suffering There's a lot of agony There's a lot of bad things that take place A lot of people die early A lot of people uh, struggle through life And if this is all that we've got Then boy, we are to be pitied As Paul would say in First Corinthians 15 uh, But when we have a faith in God, we know that there's more to existence than just uh, what we see here and now. The, we know that there's going to be a restoration of all the good things that God had intended to begin with, where that we will have life eternal. Our immortal bodies will take on, our mortal bodies will take on immortality, and we will be made new. We will be made like Christ, and we'll be in the presence of God for eternity. So uh, there's a there's no hope in that in that meme, but in Christ we have all the hope. Yeah, I like that angle, man.
1: Uh, Mark Dunigan, what you got? Well, you know, I hear a lot about atheists, Brian, saying, well, there's not enough conclusive proof for God. Okay, what's your conclusive proof that there is no God? I want to hear it. What's your evidence? I, I hear, I see a lot of things like this, Brian, and I see no proof authored. It's interesting. The Christian has to offer proof. The atheist tends not to offer any proof and just makes the claim, just makes this arrogant sort of all-knowing claim. Yep, there's no existence after death. Are you sure? Do you have proof of that? Can can I see your proof? Can I see your proof that God does not exist? And Nick made a great point. You, You walk away from God, what do you got? You got nothing. You got nothing at all. You don't have morality anymore. You can't have morality without God, so there's no right and wrong. And you can't have any sort of justice. So you got to get rid of all your social justice stuff. Got to get rid of all your fairness. You got to get rid of all your gripes and complaints about how people have not treated you right. No God, people don't have to treat you any way they want. They can do their own thing. There's no morality. You got to give up all your complaints. You got to give up your murmuring. You got to give up your complaints on what's happening to the world. And this world is such a terrible place. You can't complain about suffering anymore because that's meaningless animals suffer and we're just an animal and no one really cares about that and so I want to hear your proof Do do you have do you have proof that morality can come from nothing do you have proof that spiritual values can come from nothing do you have proof that life can come from nothing that you have proof that matter can come from nothing I want to hear your proof don't give me some lousy meme I want to hear something meaty, something substantial. I want a conversation. Give me some proof. And so, come on, bring it, put your big boy pants on and let's see your conclusive proof on this. Those are my thoughts, Brian.
0: Mark, tell us how you feel.
1: Uh, Terry, let's hear it.
3: Well, how does he know they don't exist? And then this is what Mark is saying, call, call, let's bring your proof that they don't exist. When we've got proof that they do exist, the heavens declare the glory of God. We see somebody who came from heaven, uh, Jesus Christ. We see somebody that came back from the dead, uh, eyewitnesses. So we've got proof. But where's your proof? As Mark said, they don't have any proof? This is just an, another empty claim. Uh, the spirits do exist beyond the grave, and Jesus proved that beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt. Those are my thoughts.
0: Amen. Uh, Brian Haynes,
4: worst recruitment poster ever.
1: <laughs> That's it. Yeah, That's yeah it. I want to. I want to be an atheist now. Absolutely, man, I'm in. Right, I'm b- buying in.
4: Yeah, yeah. You know, all belief is a matter of choice uh, and a matter of desire. (laughs) What on earth uh, does this cause you to want to believe it?
0: Yeah. Good thoughts there, guys. Appreciate uh, those comments. All right. If you need any more clarification on that meme or if you have a meme that is going around on social media that you can't answer or it's giving you trouble of some sort, hey, send it to us. Questions at AnsweringReligiousError.com or you can private message us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash AnsweringReligiousError. All right. uh, We do have a live question here. I want to uh, ask some questions on this, uh, Samuel. It says, what talking points would be ideal to show someone of Orthodox faith that theirs is not actually the historically original Christianity like they claim? Uh, Quick clarification, if you don't mind. do You mean Greek, Eastern? You know, what are you just looking in general? Um, So if you can give us some clarification on that, we would appreciate it. Next question that we have here. Regarding prayer and the observance of the Lord's Supper, are there specific things we should include in the giving of thanks prior to partaking of the emblems? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, Terry, what you got for me?
3: Well, in first Corinthians chapter 11, we are to remember his body. And so we give thanks that Jesus came in the flesh and offered a sacrifice. That's what that is about. A body you have prepared for me, Hebrews chapter 8. You prepared a body for me to be the sacrifice for actual sin. And so Jesus lived a sinless life. Uh, I think it's appropriate just to, to thank him for bringing the perfect body into, uh, into our reality and helping us to know somebody cared for us and gave his life for our sins. So praying for, uh, just thanking. Uh, what Jesus did is uh, thank said, give thanks for that. So giving thanks for Jesus. Now, of course, your mind can go a thousand different direction, directions with that. There's just all kinds of things that I think about. I think of Isaiah 53, uh, the things that are pertaining to that. I think of Um, the perfection of Jesus in the body. When I come to the element of the fruit of the vine, you think about he poured out his blood for us. and, And so I am so thankful for that because I don't have a chance in the world of being right with God without the blood of Jesus. And so I'm just very thankful for those two things. Those are two things. Just remind yourself of his body that was perfect, sinless separate from sinners untainted by sin and yet he was willing as an innocent person to die on our uh, on our behalf also to think about his blood uh, that was poured out for us those are you know they're just those are the specific things jesus called for us uh, to think about and uh, i would think those are good things to pray about as well
2: sure
1: absolutely anyone else you know brian what i like mm-hmm. is that god did not say talk about this and this he said remember me this is my body which is given for you this is the blood of the covenant and that can go on all different ways like the, the weight of our sins, the gravity of our sins, the fact that there was no other way to be saved and the, the price that God paid. It's, I, I like, Brian, how God did not script the Lord's Supper. And, and, and rather, he said, "This is Jesus died for you. He died for your sins. But you know, you guys, there's probably a lot of things that you need to think about and talk about, and it's going to be served every week. And so, and not only that, but Man, you got to get the resurrection in there as well, because without that resurrection, that death, that death has no effective value. Romans chapter one, and verse four, he was declared to be the son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. So uh, I I just like how God says, I'm not going to script you. I'm not going to script you on that one. I'm going to give you here's the parameters. And then, you know, let's see what comes out of the gratitude of your heart as you ponder the fact that I gave my son to die for you and, and that, and it's the only way to be saved and there's no other route. Those are my thoughts.
0: Yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, as host, if I may answer a couple of things, some pet peeves of mine and see what y'all think about this. Um, one thing that, that bothers me is when I'm trying to prepare for the Lord's supper or trying to reflect on that and someone gets up and says, Hey, uh, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it's commanded to partake of the Lord's Supper, which is not commanded. It's it's an example there in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Uh, but they'll get up and say, hey, it, it, it's commanded for us to partake, and and that's why we're partaking. And then they just go on uh, with partaking of, or, you know, the, the church partaking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I think that for those who are, who are making a, a speech or making a talk before uh, the church partaking together, give them some things to to think about where they can reflect on what Terry said and what Mark said and not sit there and show authority for why we're doing it. Because that's not really, in my mind, that's not preparing me uh, for to remember Jesus. What are your thoughts on that, guys? I, I, I welcome objection to that. but
3: Yeah, I don't like that either. I don't like this saying that we're doing this just simply because it's commanded. Uh, Jesus said, remember me. Yeah. That's when you're doing it, to remember me, not because it's just merely a command. So I, I, I'm with you on that. I think our minds need to go back to remembering Jesus, thinking about him. Yeah.
0: Amen. All right. Appreciate the, uh, go ahead, Brian. Gentlemen. I was just going to add,
4: you know, one of the interesting things that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 too is the mindfulness towards one another. Um, you know, he speaks, uh, very much, you know, we talked a little bit about the body of Christ and in the context of first Corinthians chapter 11, the body of Christ is also the church, uh, which is why he gives the command. You need to wait for one another. You need to partake with one another. Um, and it's not so much we're praying to or about one another, but there is a mindfulness about each other that we're supposed to have as well. Um, and prayer can reflect that idea. Um, there's a uh, it's a terrible idea to think, well, it's just the communion is just me and the Lord, and it's not. It's it's the people of God and the Lord. It's a common union that we have together, the, hence the word communion, you know, the the connection that we have with each other as believers and fellowship with one another because we're in fellowship with Christ, and this Lord's Supper is in part a celebration of that relationship. And uh, as I said, 1 Corinthians 11, they had a problem in Corinth. They weren't waiting for each other. They weren't partaking of this together And they had a mindset of each one doing it all by themselves, so to speak. And Paul's condemning that, saying, if you don't discern uh, each other and and the connection with each other, you're you're taking this in vain. So uh, there's maybe one more thing to consider, too.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. I I appreciate it so much. And I like what Mark Gibson here says. uh, Jesus specifically gave thanks for the bread and the fruit of the vine. Sometimes prayers of the Lord's Supper leave these out. So something to think about as well. All right. Next question uh, that we have here. And this is going back to uh, our first question about the uh, Orthodox. He gives a clarification, says any one of the Orthodox faiths is fine. Greek Orthodox might be the most classic answer can be based on them or possibly Eastern Orthodox. Uh, we'll, we'll do what we can here today. But I, I think that maybe we can give you some generic answers today and then uh, next week have a more in-depth Uh, answer, because this is an involved question, uh, very fully loaded here. All right. So the question originally was what talking points would be ideal to show someone of orthodox faith that theirs is not actually the historically original Christianity like they claim? And I I appreciate this question because this is on the rise, or it seems I've got personal experience with it. Uh, Nick, you were talking about some personal experience with it. So apparently it's uh, people are starting to talk about this, especially in our circles. And so we need we do need to deal with this. Uh, Brian Haynes, we'll start with you.
4: Yeah. So, what's kind of important to understand, and while an Orthodox uh, hearer might not agree with this, uh, Orthodoxy and Catholicism more or less are on the same uh, train for quite a while in history. Let's let's kind of pin down and say, like Ignatius of Antioch is one of the earliest of these guys. He was the one bishop guy. He's the one that institutes the idea that hey, there should only be one bishop per church, which is one of the core concepts of the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church. Um, Orthodox Church, Catholic churches, uh, those terms don't exist necessarily in the second, third, fourth century. Um, but these premises uh, start to rise up in different groups and and by the fourth century there's about five of them. Uh, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople rises in the fifth uh, you know in the fourth century and Rome. Um, and in those groups, there's this uh, uh, kind of tension as to who's the supreme. In the 5th century, there's a there's a division between Constantinople and Rome, and Rome kind of emerges in a sense of primacy. But remember, Islam shows up in the 6th, 7th century and takes out most of these other groups so that the the real distinction then in history is between these last two, Catholicism and Orthodoxy. So Orthodoxy itself... Uh, second, third, fourth century, as I said, we're going to be making the same case early on that we make with Catholicism, that it lacks uh, connection to the teachings of the New Testament. And that, in fact, it's most likely the, the, the things that point to orthodoxy in the New Testament are, are surround the great apostasy, the ideas of, you know, one person is swooping authority in the congregation. Think of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, when it talks about one person who, uh, you know, this son of perdition, who uh, sets himself the place of God in the temple of God. The temple of God's the church. The place of God is the head of the church. So, you know, Orthodoxy has patriarchs that are the heads of the church. So there they have a very distinct uh, pointing to that uh, that this great falling away connects to them. So whenever I would have a conversation with an Orthodox who's going to claim they're the original church, I say, let's look at the original church Let's look at the teachings of Orthodoxy, and let's compare and contrast. Um, you know, multiple presbyters uh, or one patriarch. You know, call no man the word patriarch means father. Call no man father. You might point out too. Um, you know, baptism for the adult for the child. You know, the, the the teachings of the church, the organization of the church in Orthodoxy, the teachings and organization of the church uh, in the New Testament, and effectively, we're going to have the same conversation we might have with someone who's Catholic. Um, And again, the reason is that these two groups really were probably the same uh, apostasy in the second and third centuries. So it makes sense that we would be facing them with that point. So there's an area to start with. I'm uh, excited to hear what the other guys have to say too.
0: Yeah, good stuff. Terry? Terry?
3: um i was thinking uh, orthodoxy just means uh what conforming to what's generally or traditionally accepted well who's accepting it and who so I, I would i would think that the best thing to ask is rather than is it generally accepted ask is it biblical that is does it go back to the original teaching of the bible that is the apostles what did they teach now in First Corinthians chapter four, uh, verse 17 says, "For this reason, I sent Timothy to, de- to you, who is my beloved and faithful son of the Lord, who will remind you of my ways uh, my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere, in every church." So that's what we need to find out. What did Paul teach everywhere? in every church in the first century and then whether it's accepted now or not that was what was accepted then and that's what must be accepted now so i so i would think going back to look at the original teaching of the apostles now paul said in ephesians chapter 3 he says i the spirit gave it to me that's why I taught it everywhere in every church. The Spirit gave it to me. I wrote it down in few words. When you read, you may understand what I know. So I know then what the apostle knows, uh, knew, and I can know it uh, the same because he wrote it down, and I can read what he wrote, and what he wrote reflects what he knew. Uh, so that's the original teaching that should concern us. Uh, whether it is orthodox in the sense of well accepted by the masses of people. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think we should go for that. That's not our standard. The, the masses sometimes miss the boat <laughs> and uh, literally on the, uh, in Noah's day, they missed the boat. Um, in our day, they missed the boat. We have to go back to the scriptures and say, ask ourselves, is this, The mind of God, as he expressed it, and has been put down in writing so that we can understand what is true and what is right, what is scriptural, what is authorized by the scriptures. And then we'll be, you know, we're we're in, in the safe zone there. We need to be safe with our souls and safe with other souls by simply being scriptural and biblical. Those are my thoughts.
1: Yeah. And I think along with that Terry is the question is what is your final authority? Is it scripture or is it scripture plus tradition or scripture plus the writings of men? Yeah. What's your, what's your final authority as I run into individuals in this situation, first of all, I really couldn't see a difference between them them and Catholicism. They really resemble one another With, with the incredible amount of tradition and hierarchy and layers. And it, it, is, it is a system, and it's somewhat like Mormonism. That is, and Islam. Somebody else can do your thinking for you. You just show up, and the experts in the group will do your thinking for you. Is that you don't have to really you don't have to really wrestle with scripture yourself. And I think that's the appeal for some people. Some people get they, they get tired of wrestling with scripture themselves, and it's like, hey, I, I need to come to the right decision here. And it's far more comfortable, I'm going, let, I'm going to let somebody else figure it out, and I'll just, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll buy into that. And so what's your final authority? Uh, is it scripture? Is it the words of Jesus Christ? Uh, are you adding or taking away from scripture as far as are you at, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are you adding human traditions? Because Matthew 15, that makes your worship vain. Those are my thoughts.
0: So let me uh, throw this at you guys. Um, and I don't know if Samuel wants to go this direction, but uh, I, I kind of want to. Um, so you talked about authority and what what's your final authority is a scripture. Correct me if I'm wrong. Don't they say that? OK, well, authority is scripture, but it's also the church. Now, I think um, going back to what Terry said about, well, is it accepted or is it biblical? I really liked that point there, Terry, um, but. Correct me if I'm wrong. They say, "Well, it, it, yeah, yeah, Scripture." But then the apostles, you know, they they passed down. So you know, Paul would have passed down the gospel to Timothy, and then Timothy was to pass down the gospel to to other faithful men, and they would have taken that role. They would have represented the apostles. Am I on the same? Are we on the same page? Am I saying that correctly, Brian? You're shaking your head, yes, and or you're not. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. So, uh, so then, therefore, we need to answer one of their arguments here is that. Authority is not just scripture alone. It is scripture and then the church or scripture and tradition. And you know, I know you mentioned Matthew chapter 15 there, Mark, but what are some ways that y'all would answer that? Uh, because I think that helps us with getting to what is historical here, because, uh, I, and I don't know all the history perfectly on this, but hey, they are going to be the ones who are going to write the history because they own it, so to speak. Yeah. So h- how can we handle that? That is the I'll,
2: I'll go Do up. In the okay. Well, I you- I, um, I was looking up uh, before we we got on today because I saw the question drop uh, from Mr. Carter there, and I did get on uh, a uh, Greek Orthodox website just to try to get, wrap my my mind around what are some of the things they teach, and and uh, Saint Catherine Church org is where I found this. And they do specifically mention that scripture is their source of authority, but it's not the only source. They also use holy tradition, which is going to encompass many of the things that you said there, uh, Brian you know, what has been passed down, uh, especially the ecumenical councils. There's seven ecumenical councils. They call it the seven ecumenical councils uh, with a unified church. And I know the Lutherans also embrace those seven, but it's after those seven is when uh, the Catholics continue to make ecumenical councils, but these other churches back off. And so what's interesting is there's the argument that is made that these ecumenical councils are just, they're not creating new doctrines uh, they are just reaffirming what was already established and but that goes back to the scriptures then. I mean what whatever the scriptures reveal to us, that's the standard and anything else that's mentioned in these ecumenical councils is beyond what is authorized and so that's that's where we would have to really begin to uh, f- uh, fish around I guess to find some of these like, specific points. Uh, Because I understand uh, looking for uh, talking points like these are specific doctrines that we can look at uh, to be able to begin to uh, address some of the errors of a particular uh, system of belief. And so it's going to have to come to that. And I know infant baptism is going to be one of those areas. Um, But I, I need some more time to really dive deeper into Uh, the greek orthodox church because it's for a long time it's been uh kind of non-existent but it is true it is starting to rise in popularity i'm seeing our own brethren getting uh swayed by some of these arguments and I, i think the reason for that is because there are some similarities between the churches of christ and the greek orthodox church you know the musical instruments uh, for example, is going to be very convincing because we agree uh, that it's a cappella. Uh, there is, I think, the belief in baptism, even though they're going to have that infant baptism aspect to it. So we, we do see some these some of these uh, deeply held beliefs of ours in in, uh, in similarity. And yet they also have that historical tradition, uh, not the same way that they were using it in their article, but I'm talking about that Uh, They have a longevity. They have, they've been around for a long time. They have that flair. They have the, the ritualism that a lot of people love Catholicism for, but yet it's not Catholicism. It's, it's Greek Orthodox. And so I see that there is a sway. There is a, there's a draw, uh, to, to that type of, uh, ceremonial worship, I guess you could say it, it abandons truth. Uh, and, and we, that's what we really need to go back to. Peter said that, uh, you know, all that pertains to life and godliness has been given to us. Or And Jude tells us in verse 3 that we can contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to us. And so anything outside of the New Testament traditions, the traditions established by the apostles in the first century only, whatever has been established uh, through the scriptures, that's all that we have as as authority. Anything that goes beyond that is going to begin to unravel as there's no foundation underneath those things, uh, such as the uh, the one presbyter, as Brian was mentioning earlier, uh, we see an eldership is what is established in the scriptures, and and I was speaking to a Lutheran pastor one time, and he said, "Well, you know, Nick, I think you have the truth on that uh, with that eldership business, uh, but this is just not how we do things. It's, our church has decided to do it this way, and and so there is a gravity given to a church's decision, Uh, and they go back to that verse in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it says the the church is the foundation and the ground, the pillar and the ground for the truth, Uh, and so scripture is is truth, but the church also has the authority to establish truth, and that is certainly uh, an abuse of what that verse is trying to say, so if I could have another week to look some of these things up, I would certainly appreciate that.
0: Okay, uh, Brian. We'll finish yeah, up. Yeah, um,
4: I I I think Terry has one more comment. So actually, I've already made a comment. Why don't we go to Terry then? We'll finish it there.
0: Well, no, go ahead. I, I want to hear what you had to say. So well, uh, well, we'll I'm just going to say. Well, will allow Terry. Uh, I'm just going to gonna say one of the one of the important
4: ideas is that this is not a unique thing for Orthodoxy to say. We have two sources of authority. Just about every denomination today has two sources of authority um, Catholicism has magisterium, which by the way, magisterium is just the Latin term for the same thing the Greek Orthodox claims. It's the tradition of the church fathers, uh, you know, magisterium, why I like the word is you see the word magic in it. It's, it's kind of a supernatural, the Pope knows something the rest of us don't know. Um, and, and of course it's arbitrary and it's, it's, it's outrageous at times. Um, even Protestants, Claim that the Holy Spirit guides them in a way that's independent and separate from the scripture, thus saying they have two sources of authority themselves. Just about everybody claims that. Now, anytime somebody claims they have two sources of authority, I always think of what Jesus said you can't have two masters, you're going to love one and hate the other. Amen. Universally, when there are two sources of authority, the scriptures get put on the back burner. They become the secondary, the lesser, the backup, uh, everything about that. And that other source of authority takes over. Now, the reason is because what Nick said, well, I'll point to Nick, what Nick said, because Nick made the point that the scriptures say, hey, we're the only authority. Well, how do you reconcile that? If you have two sources of authority, one of them says, I'm it, and the other one says, eh, don't listen to him. You know, you're yeah, you, uh, um, it's really uh an important point. And orthodoxy falls into the exact same problem that almost all, uh, all denominations do. They fall into the problem of having a dual, conflicting, authoritative source. Now, how? what's the result of conflicting authoritative sources? Change. Is that over time, you change what you believe. You change what happens. You change your source of authority. One of the biggest things was when Constantinople fell and the patriarchy of Constantinople had to be dissolved, it was technically moved to Russia, uh, but it, it effectively was dissolved. Uh, theoretically, that should have killed that church because that was their magisterium. It doesn't because they still kind of had this web of connection everywhere uh, with these other Orthodox churches. That's why, by the way, you see a lot of independent Orthodox churches as opposed to a singular United one because of the fall of of, uh, Constantinople in the 15th century. So again, history has a lot to play with this, but, but the bigger idea is their fundamental flaw is to try to have two sources of authority, just as every other denomination does. And it's not hard to demonstrate, just like Nick just did, that there's only one.
1: Terry? Great point, Brian. I'm reminded in, in Mark chapter 7. There's a statement there, and uh, it says, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. That would be verse 9. And Brian's right. Like, Baptism is a good example. In the New Testament, it's for the forgiveness of sins, it's immersion water, and it's for someone old enough to re- believe and repent. Okay. In these other churches, what wins? Well, tradition wins. And and I think Jesus made a great point there is that you cannot hold to human tradition and, and scripture at the same time. Uh, and scripture is always going to get pushed aside. It, it's always going to be like, you know, a wallflower in, in a lot of these groups. And I like what Nick said or, or one of them said like, well, we also hold to holy tradition. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have argued they held the holy tradition too. korban corban would have been a holy tradition in their eyes and yet jesus says man that is human tradition it makes your worship vain and you're violating scripture also nick made a good point on first timothy 315 first timothy 315 does not mean that the church originates truth the the church's job is to defend the truth and the practice of truth to preach the truth but truth is the word of god and so the church does not invent truth those are my thoughts brian but great conversation
3: yeah
0: terry us quick we've got to move huh. on to some other questions
3: okay well the first century church was told that the man of god is thoroughly furnished to every good work by the scriptures the scriptures thoroughly completely furnish the man of god uh, with everything that we need all that pertains to life and godliness peter says everything is right there So you don't look past into the next few centuries and see these councils come up with some additional traditional things that are not in the scriptures. No, you just stick with the scriptures. You're going to be thoroughly furnished. You're going to be completely furnished with whatever the scriptures provide. That was God's that was God's design. Even in Jesus day, he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He'll live by every word of God so if it's the word of God then stick with that and believe that it thoroughly furnishes you with everything you need going to next century in the next century and finding councils that say some things that wasn't handed down right there in the scriptures you don't need that it's already in the scriptures it completely furnishes the man of God
0: yeah that's great points uh, Samuel, you said, sorry for the heavy, heavy question, guys. You do what seems best to you on your program. And don't let me take over more time with this question than what seems best to you all. Thanks again. You are banned from this. No, I'm just kidding. We love the questions, man. Keep them coming. Thank you very much. And we will do more for this question, uh, next week. Cause I think, I think we need to, to talk about this subject. All right. Next question that we have lined up today. Is it a sin for man to wear long hair. I've been looking forward to answer this question. So uh, guys, what do we got here? Uh, Brian, let's start with you because you have the longest hair here, don't you, I think? Yeah, go ahead. That's right.
4: You guys need to listen to this guy because uh, he has the best haircut around. That's it. Um, you know, I want to be careful with this and I was actually kind of hoping maybe the other guys would answer first. I wanted to hear what they had to say. Uh, first I hands, to the uh, Chad, uh, Chad, Yeah, I know. I know how that goes. Uh, and to remember, I can summon bears if I have to. So um so, First Corinthians chapter eleven speaks to the nature of uh, hair—long hair, short hair—and Paul makes this point that um, that th- there's a there's a natural element to the length of hair that uh, men don't naturally grow long hair; women do. Women have a natural glory in hair that men don't. Um, I would suggest that First Corinthians chapter eleven isn't necessarily a condemnation of men having long hair. That being said. I would suggest that the scriptures do, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, describe men and women as having gender roles. Uh, we just did a sermon on this subject recently about gender and why it matters. And we have gender roles, and we're not supposed to kind of mix those things up, so to speak. And I think sometimes uh, men growing long hair uh, for the sake of you know, their beautiful appearance, femininity, it's not something that's really well-regarded in many ways. Now, i got to be careful to say there were lots of men in the Old Testament with long hair. Um, Samuel, Samson, uh, p- potentially John the Baptist. Um, and I say these three because it seems that they're all Nazarites from birth, which would have meant they didn't cut their hair. So they would have had long hair in some fashion. So we we have that characteristic. We're also aware of Absalom. Or, well, it doesn't actually say Absalom had long hair, but he had thick hair. So uh, Absalom might be one of the people we think of as well. So I would hesitate to say it's not a sin, but blurring the lines between men and women, that is a problem. And that's the thing I'm far more concerned about
1: in that circumstance. Brian, those are, those are great comments. Uh, I think the Nazarite vow, it's not inherently sinful, but the Nazarite vow was unique, was it not? I mean, it seems like the Nazarite vow's presence admits that the vast majority of men typically would have short hair. Uh, because the, the vow was an unusual sort of thing where you did not cut your hair. Um, I have to admit that as far as the coloring of this question, Brian, is that I come from a generation where men that grew long hair, it was primarily for rebellion. It, it was, it was a Mark rebellion. So I got a dog in the fight here. I, I grew up in the time where if that's kind of what you're wearing, it typically meant that you were pushing the envelope. You were, you viewed yourself as a bit of a rebel, you were going to be a nonconformist, etc. And so that probably colors my view of it. For probably to this day, I have a hard time taking someone with long hair seriously. Uh, And and maybe until I get to know them better and etc. But I I inherently feel like, okay, what's beneath the surface? That's the long hair or the the man bun, which, <laughs> the long hair of the man bun, to me is a red flag of something's going on beneath the surface. Now, maybe I'll dig there a little bit or whatever, but um, those are my thoughts on it. To me, the motivation why are you doing it? And if someone looks at you from behind, are they having a hard time figuring out if you're a man or a woman? Brian's comment is well taken. That can be a big problem.
3: Yeah, the context here seems to, to reflect uh, an interest in what is fitting, and how that would uh, how that that uh, going for what is not actually um, well accepted and fitting for the time for the moment. That reflects back on your relation. What you claim is a relationship with Jesus Christ. How does that reflect on your head? Jesus, I'm talking not, not this head but your higher head, Jesus Christ, how does it reflect on that? So he's in this context asking or appealing to us to think in terms of what is going to uh, reflect well on your relationship to him. Is it going to show that you re- you respect Jesus so much that you're going to do the things that are actually fitting to do? Now, whether it's sinful, that's a different question. It, it's probably not an inherently sinful thing in view of the fact that God wouldn't say on the one hand, uh, it's sinful to wear your head along it. But I'm going to let you do a sinful thing uh, and have a Nazarite vow that uh, so we're going to have a conflict of law. So it's not sinful, but it's not fitting is the point. Uh, and so that that would be my thoughts on that.
0: All right. Appreciate that, guys. Hey, I got a question for the panel. When Brian talks, does he look like this guy right here?
3: (laughs) That's it. I call him the Bears. He is the brain. He is the brain.
0: He is. is. Oh, that was perfect. Okay. Next question. Next question. Why would I want to fear God? Why would I want to fear God? Uh, Nick, let's start with you.
2: Well, it's because um, Matthew chapter ten, verse twenty eight: uh, "Fear uh, not the ones who can destroy the body only, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul and hell." There is a judgment coming, and we need to recognize that there is a goodness and severity uh, to the God of all creation. And Paul reminds us that in Romans chapter eleven, verse twenty two: "That if we do good, then the goodness; but if we do wrong, then then that severe side of God." There is that that uh, reality. Uh, we need to recognize that and we need to respect God. And that is fear uh, in in a positive sense. But uh, we also need to recognize that there is that healthy dose of fright that comes with the reality that there is a God that is powerful enough to destroy both body and soul in hell. Uh, not that we are going to be motivated by that fear only. Uh, I think we need to mature from that point. Uh, Because if if I'm only becoming a Christian because I want to avoid hell, that's a very selfish reason to become a Christian. I'm just looking out for myself. Uh, Maturity in Christianity shows that I'm becoming a Christian because I recognize the depth of love that God has demonstrated to deliver me from hell. And there is a fundamental difference there. If I am coerced to become a Christian, if I've, quote unquote, got a gun against my head saying, hey, if you do, you better become a Christian or die. I mean, I might be obedient for a little while, but that's not going to be enduring. But if I am moved to become a Christian because of the reality of the of God's love and I recognize what he has done to deliver me from hell, then I'm going to have a loyalty that is running deep and strong and powerful. Uh, and so maybe initially uh, that shock value, like, oh, there is a hell, there's a judgment." I better straighten up. Is is healthy, but it, it's unsustainable. We've got to really mature into uh, understanding the character of God and building that loyalty that is on uh, that that familiar, uh, strong, healthy uh, relationship-building side of things. So, all of it's uh, important, um, and and those are some of my thoughts
3: on this subject.
0: I appreciate it, Terry.
3: When you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, do you have reverent fear you're looking at? Do they have to ask you, why should you uh, respect the creation? You're looking at the stars, the heavenly bodies. You're looking at the wonders of nature all around you. Somebody has to ask you why. You fear the Creator of the of all of this. Why you're in awe and respect the Creator? That that uh, then then you take uh, Proverbs one verse eight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. You you start to know why you're here. You you start to know uh, the value of of yourself. You and the value of other people made in the image of god it starts there with the fear of the lord and that opens the door for wisdom and knowledge in so many areas so uh you know to ask the question why would i want to well because i want to know why i'm here i want to know what my purpose is i want to know what my destiny is and that the fear of the lord begins that journey of learning and developing wisdom and knowledge and appreciation and thanksgiving and all of those things come into play because we started with the fear of the Lord and so I would say that that's that's my answer I want to because it's I mean it I can't think of any other reason to be here and I don't understand uh, how all of this uh, all of the creation could be standing right before me and me just ignore it and say, I, I, I'm not even curious about how it came to be. I'm not even curious about who made it all and why he made it and why he made me. I want to begin to know those answers. And it begins with the fear of the Lord.
1: Terry, great comments. You know, Brian, fear is going to be part of your life one way or another. And and it's important to understand that is that the fear of the Lord is like a healthy respect and awe where. I realize I'm not God. God is God. And so I don't have it within me to like inherently know right and wrong. And so I'm going to acknowledge him in all my ways. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust his wisdom. Okay. And I'm going to respect him. I'm going to respect his point of view and I'm going to obey him. And I'm going to respect what he's done for me. Okay. Now the other choices, if you say like, no, not opting in on that, is that you're going to fear men. And I like first John talks about perfect love, cast out fear. And that is that if I love God, I'm not going to have the slavish fear that people in the world have, where they're afraid of men, where they're afraid of all sorts of things, where they're afraid of the future, what's going to happen next. And you really have a choice here is that if God is not the number one thing you respect, and you say, I respect God and I stand in awe of God. And the Bible uses that word in the sense of fear. God is God. You're not. If you don't opt in on that, guess what? You're going to be afraid of everything else. And so I'm going to opt for the one healthy fear, the one healthy respect, so I don't have a life that's filled with the one million (laughs) unhealthy neurotic and, hey, case in point, look out in the world there as people don't fear God. They are basket cases of all sorts of worries and anxieties and fears. And so maybe that would be my reason today. I'm opting. It's like you opt for the healthy love, and you opt for the healthy fear. That's what I'm opting for.
0: Yeah, uh, Mark, you brought up First John four: Perfect love casts out fear. So does uh, David here, and uh, but l- help me reconcile this passage with the idea of there should still be things like trembling in our service. I mean, Paul even says, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." Well, I would think that Paul would also say, uh, hey, perfect love, cast out fear. So uh, can we reconcile that, those two concepts?
1: Well, I think the yeah, next yeah. phrase there in that first John passage, Brian, is that because fear involves punishment. And, and I think the thought for the Christian, if I'm right with God, I'm not facing punishment. The, 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 the past is not going to catch up to me. I've been forgiven of my sins. I don't have to stand in dread of the final judgment. But it it has to also include things like I don't have to stand in dread of men. I don't fear men. I don't fear what they think. I don't fear what they can do to me. Matthew chapter 10, uh, where Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid of people that can kill you. Be afraid. (laughs) And so and that's a good point. There is that perfect love cast out fear. But Jesus said, but be afraid of the one that can send you to hell. I mean, always keep that. Never lose that. So I think the fear there in first John is something that's not healthy and it's not biblical. And it's something that if you're right with God, it goes by the wayside. Those are my thoughts, okay. at least on that.
0: Uh, Brian.
4: Yeah, you might even add to that, the parable of the, uh, of the talents where the one talent man was afraid of the master. So he, he chose not to act. And that was a wicked fear as opposed to a godly fear. When people ask me about the fear of the Lord, I always like to make the analogy that the fear of the Lord is like electricity. Um, You know, especially, you know, in in the United States, uh, in my home, I love electricity. I wouldn't be doing this show without electricity. I love lights. I love the heater. Uh, Electricity is one of the great blessings of my life. Couldn't imagine my life without it. But I have to be very careful how I handle electricity. Um, you know, I don't just reach around grabbing wires. I've I could tell stories of the times I have and and the times where it got to me. And I have to be very much stand back and say, don't just grab the wires. I've got to have God in my life. Uh, it, it, there's no question about that. But I also have to be mindful of the great power and respect that God deserves. I always like to go to uh jump over to Ananias and Sapphira and say, Ananias and Sapphira, give me a great sense. Of what it is that we're supposed to think about with uh this in Acts chapter five, they came before God with you know with, with, with you know a lie. They, they were gonna offer something and they just were kind of casual about it. God struck them both dead. And in 511, it says that great fear came upon all the church and all who heard this. They weren't they weren't walking around saying, Oh, God's terrible. They were going around saying, No, you, you've got to be careful how you handle God. I always like to liken that, by the way, two priests of God. That died whenever they came uh, in the service of God to Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament, where two priests of God came yeah. with uh, irreverence before God and God struck them dead. That God says, "Hey, I'm 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 holy. You've got to remember that. Uh, like electric electricity demands, I'm dangerous. You've got to remember that. And that's the thing I always like to contrast with the fear of the Lord. Uh, when we approach God, He is God. We're not. You know, we're, we can't be flippant about it we can't be casual about it we have to always be mindful just like I always have to be mindful of electricity I want it desperately but I always have to be careful with it because it reminds me and never by its nature it's dangerous if I am careless with it so that's what I like to
0: make a contrast of. hey appreciate that all right uh, Nick do you have a comment
2: yeah uh, the- A thought was uh, sparked in my mind when uh, Brian was talking there. Uh, I did a study back with the priesthood because he brought up Nadab and Abihu. And that's Leviticus chapter 10. But if you go back to Leviticus chapters uh, uh, 7, 8, 9, it's a very powerful story that's building up to a fall there in chapter 10. Um, In Exodus chapter 20, when the Israelites hear the voice of God, they are filled with deep trepidation. Uh, They're afraid for their lives. They say, Moses, you speak on our behalf and so that we don't have to die by hearing God's voice. Uh, that's, that was how afraid they were with God's presence. And yet when you get into Leviticus chapter 7, 8, 9, you see this beautiful picture where the priesthood is being prepared for their work of ministry, where they become a mediator. And and it's there's uh, sacrifices after sacrifices. It's a very bloody moment. Uh, You see a lot of bloodshed so that the so Aaron, Nadab and Abihu can be uh, purified enough to bring atonement uh, on on behalf of the people where they can be in the presence of God. And so you see God's presence at the end of chapter nine of Leviticus. And there isn't any fear. There isn't any trepidation, but there is worship and there is uh, there's this comfort. And so that brings the tragedy of chapter 10 with nabu and Bahu bringing that uh, uh, strange fire uh, destroying everything that they had built up um, it shows the weaknesses of the uh, Aaron's priesthood and when we fast forward into the New Testament we have a better priesthood that's it through Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed for him or from him and and the relationship that's been established through him we have a much more powerful, uh, relationship and bond with the father now through Jesus Christ. And yes, there is that, f- uh, that fear and that trepidation before, but we see what we have been given through Jesus Christ. And there is that, that peace that passes all understanding. And so uh, that was a, that priesthood aspect of it is, is something I wanted to share with you guys from, uh, Leviticus nine in going into chapter 10.
0: Good stuff, brother. Good stuff. All right, guys, it is 1156. We are over time. And so let's call it quits for today and pick back up on uh, next Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. Any last minute comments before we close
1: up? Brian, thanks for the great show today. All the efforts that you put into this, all the people working behind the scenes. Thank you to the other men for being part of this. And thank you to the audience for the questions and keep them coming.
0: Absolutely. Amen to everything you said. All right. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. If we did not get to your question, then please tune in next Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time as we have another edition of our live Bible Q&A. You can email us your questions, questions at com or private message us, facebook.com slash answeringreligiousera. We go live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, as well as audio only on podcast only and uh, or audio only for the podcast for all major podcast platforms. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. You can find us by searching The Daily Answer or Answering Religious Error. Uh, that is a new show that we're doing. Well, we're I guess we're episode 161 or 62, I think, I can't remember now, but it is The Daily Answer with Mark Dunnigan. He was on the show today and so we appreciate all the work that he does. So if you wanna be challenged every Monday through Friday as you are waking up and getting ready for work, Then listen to that uh, show for some great content it's about 15-20 minutes of your day and it will get your day started with the daily answer also don't forget we have a new series called why i believe we are talking about different things that uh, affect the christian Uh, things like why do i believe in the existence of god Even though I've never seen him? Why do I believe that the scriptures are inspired by God? Why do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus? So if those are some things that you're struggling with, maybe you need to um, be better confident in, then we would encourage you to check out that series every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and podcast. And if you have any subjects that you would like for us to deal with on uh, why do I believe this or believe that, then uh, be sure to email us questions at answeringreligiouserror.com. We do encourage you to check out the first three episodes in the archive uh, as we've gotten this series off to a good start. And we've dealt with why we believe that faith is necessary, why we believe in God and some others. And so I encourage you to check that out every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Again, thank you for tuning in, sending in your questions, sharing this video, and supporting the Answering Religious Error show. Until next time, God bless.